Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 97 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. A lot of cases on the dockets this past week, so no shortage to pick from, and we've picked three cases that we think are interesting. Our first case today is BFD Enterprises LLC versus Jeff Kopnick, right? Kopnick? Et al. And a case, Kopnick, a case dealing Kopnick, with issues yep. of comedy, not, not comedy, comedy. Our second case today is Cathrone versus White Castle, the fourth BIPA case. That was heard by the Illinois Supreme Court to date. Our third case is Palmer versus Elba, LB Motors Sales LLC. An interesting case dealing with whether a driver is fit for a job. Uh, before we turn to our first case today, a couple things. One is our, our friend of our podcast, Steve Showwolf, who's been on. Uh, condolences to him. He lost his father uh, yesterday morning. And then congratulations to another friend of the show, Tim Eaton, who was recognized by the All Night Bar Foundation at a gala on Friday that was postponed for about uh, more than two years through COVID. He was he was uh, advised in late 19 that he was going to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award. And then uh, Friday was a great uh, ceremony. Justice Heiss introduced him. So great, uh, great event for him. So with that, let's turn to our first... That's a long wind and up. They, to met, get they mentioned and kind of laughed about it. He's the longest in 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 residence. He said, uh, "Yeah, he almost had a lifetime." And, and, and now the they're going to make it up because in the fall, the next recipient, Patty Bob, will get it. <laughs> so a very short period, but you know that's COVID for you. So as we've talked about in this show, uh, exactly. turning to our first case right. today, BFD, and in this case, the question is an indemnity claim properly dismissed based on comedy where a trucking accident occurred in Indiana involving a husband truck driver, Jeff Kopnick, and his passenger wife, uh, Shamari uh, Shower, on a dram shop claim pending in Kentucky against Kopnick's employer, BFD. All three parties, Kopnick, Shower, and BFD, were Kentucky residents, although there was some discussion, or were they? There was some or discussion, as, as Pat will soon get into, about uh, they, they were on a, 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 an apartment for one of their sons in Indiana, and whether they were residents or not. The Indiana's court summary of the case uh, is the following, quote, BFD Enterprise LLC appeals following the trial court's order dismissing its lawsuit against Jeff Kopnick and Kopnick's wife, Shamari Shower. In August 2020, Kopnick, in his capacity as an employee of BFD and with Shower accompanying him, embarked on a trip driving a semi-tractor trailer from Lewisport, Kentucky to Kalamazoo, Michigan. In Huntington County, Indiana, Kopnick lost control of the vehicle and crashed into an overpass support pillar. Kopnick died and Shower was injured. BFD filed suit in Indiana State Court, alleging negligence in a claim under Indiana's Dram Shop Act. And Shower filed suit against BFD in Kentucky State Court, alleging negligence and vicarious liability. 
Schauer moved to dismiss the Indiana suit on the basis that the Kentucky suit should take precedence, and the Indiana trial court granted Schauer's motion. On appeal, BFD raises two issues. Number one, whether the trial court abuses its discretion in dismissing BFD's suit pursuant to comedy pr principles, and number two, whether the trial court abuses its discretion in dismissing BFD's suit on the ground Kentucky was a more convenient forum, end quote. Other complicating factors are that Shower signed a release as to permit a passenger to ride with her husband that apparently absolved BFD of all liability in the absence of properly naming of the estate of Kopnik in view of death uh, and resulting inability to get a stipulation to waive an objection to personal jurisdiction under Indiana Trial Rule 4.4D. Pat, with that as background, tell us about oral argument. What a mess. And I don't understand what the claims are here. There, I, I, As Dan mentioned at the beginning, it's an indemnity claim that appears to be being made. But why would you bring the indemnity claim in the Kentucky action? It seems that may not be permitted. But the <laughs> <laughs> let's start at the beginning, though, with what the theory was upon which the case was dismissed. Now, Dan, the, the appellate court summary mentions form nonconvenience. Forum nonconvenience was not discussed at all for an instant at the oral argument. So we don't know what that analysis was all about. So, but there was a lot of discussion about comedy. So what's comedy? Comedy is the idea that one court shouldn't decide something that is better vested with another court. It's kind of like the, the, you know, they, they recognize the other court has authority over something. They're like, oh, we'll let you take care of it. You know, we don't need, you know, they filed their first, we'll let them deal with it. And oftentimes that happens in cases where you have foreign jurisdiction involved, where they'll they'll defer to a foreign court, um, but also amongst the states, it also exists. Um, the it's really unclear as to what BFD is suing for, how they're suing for DRAM when it was their employee who was allegedly drunk. But on the flip side, the wife is suing her husband for his drunkenness. She got in the truck and she's suing his employer. I, I don't know. I'm not following she, that either. Uh, where I know that's a liability argument, I mean, she had sure, to be, but I mean, she had to be with him when he was imbibing that you know that she's in the truck with them. I, I well, maybe it sounds like because they were in process of going from uh, Kentucky to Michigan, so somewhere in Indiana, they right. this, this accident it's, happened. So, again, yeah, it seems likely that that she knew that he was impaired to some extent. Uh, so I, I, but again, that's a, that's a liability argument, not a procedural argument at this point. Uh, the, there, there's this very interesting, this contract that she signed in order to allow apparently, you know, I guess it makes sense from the, the truck driver and frankly, the truck company's perspective to have the spouse along for the, literally along for the ride. Uh, it makes it easier for them to do their job. You know, they've got some company and they, you know, they're not hankering to get home quite as much. The, the spouse is there, but then the spouse has to give up certain claims. And the question is, did she give up, did she waive all these claims? And when, and when was this defense raised, if at all, uh, was a little unclear uh, by the, by the uh, trucking company. Uh, they don't want to be in Kentucky for some reason. They really want to be in Indiana. The accident occurred in Indiana, to be sure. Seems they all have ties, or many of them have ties to both states. But uh, you know, 
obviously the court didn't find that it was appropriate to, to leave in Indiana. It, it's, it's a real, uh, there was a discussion about having races to the courthouse and how that's generally a bad idea to, you know, the first one of the courthouse wins and okay, that that's certainly uh, something you want to discourage, but if you file first, you know, you usually have the advantage. In Illinois, we have a rule uh, regarding contemporaneous lawsuits, and who files first oftentimes has the advantage. Uh, get Assert your claims if you have them. There's also a question about statute of limitations under Kentucky law that wasn't fully developed, at least during the oral argument, whether they could even bring these claims, which may be why they filed in Indiana and not Kentucky, is because their claim may be barred under Kentucky law. Uh, so all kinds of mess here. It'll be interesting to see the oral argument. We wanted to bring this up, though, because it raises this unique issue of comedy. doesn't come up very much. And it's a very bizarre set of facts uh, that, uh, that, that, that came up. Uh, Dan, anything uh, to add to our discussion of Now, you, you, uh, you mentioned case. the Kentucky statute of limitations and, and in response to a question. I guess there's something with the, you know, the first payment of PIP, but there's no PIP here. So last payment of PIP. No, last payment of PIP. So, it's their last. It's the, it's a year right. from the last PIP payment. So Kentucky, unlike Indiana, is a is a PIP state, and it's the statute runs a yeah. year after the last PIP payment. Now I don't know why PIP would apply here, as the accident occurred in there was no PIP payment Indiana, not Kentucky. Uh, so yeah. I don't know whether it would apply or not. There was no first or last payment What's here that again? PIP because that's what the. Ad- no, nah, yeah, I don't know. If there's no was PIP even a PIP here, so not sure how that statute applies or how you know it's kind of murky. The the, the biggest question, right, like okay. you said, uh, you know, w- w- it'd be interesting to it understand is. what's really what BFD sued for in the Dram Shop Act, and it's kind of not readily apparent from anything that I heard. You know what what the heck's really going on here? So it's an interesting. Maybe there's another party involved with the Dram Shop Act, and and somehow. Yeah, again, it's 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 unclear, um, but uh, it is an interesting case. Like I said, this doesn't come up very often, so interesting case with with uh, you know depending on how the court comes out on this, it probably goes to the Indiana Supreme Court, right? Because it's a uh, just an interesting case in terms of uh, procedural issues. Indeed, so that's why we wanted to bring it up. With that, we'll take our first break and come back with Cothrone versus uh, White Castle, which is a whole lot more straightforward in terms of what the issues are. So we're back for segment two of episode 97 of the Podium and Panel, Panel Podcast, and we're talking about Cothrone versus White Castle. The Illinois Supreme Court heard argument this week in its fourth BIPA. That's the Biometric Information Privacy Act, for those following along at home and who haven't been paying attention to Illinois co- courts we're in the last to uh, Easter several Brooke. years. The three previous cases were Rosenbach. <laughs> we will. Exactly. Well, we'll be talking about Judge Easterbrook here before too long. Uh, the three... The pre-previous cases were Rosenbach, where the court held that a plaintiff is aggrieved with a statutory violation alone and no other injury. The West Bend versus Krishna Schomburg case, in which the court held there was coverage under a CGL policy, 
for publication of biometric information. And the McDonald versus Symphony case, which didn't really come up in this argument, whereas the other two did, particularly the Rosenbach case, the McDonald case is the case where the court held there was no exclusive remedy under the Workers' Compensation Act. In Cothrone versus Whitecastle, the court will answer the following certified question from the Seventh Circuit. Do Section 15B and 15D claims accrue each time a private entity scans a person's biometric identifier and each time a private entity transmits such a scan to a third party, respectively, or only upon the first scan and first transmission? The argument continued with the strange positions this statute puts the parties in. This time it was the defendant arguing that continuous accrual will lead to ruinous damages, while the plaintiff argued that damages are rather modest, even if there is a violation every time the biometric data is collected. It seems very hard to square the Rosenbach decision of immediate accrual with a mere, mere statutory violation of a single biometric identifier with continuous violation, which was the point that the uh, defendants made. It does not seem it can be both both because once the defendant has the biometric identifier, there is nothing further that needs to be done to create a claim. This also relates to this, this at bottom, this is a dispute about statute of limitations. Another case that came up was the Watson case in which the Illinois Appellate Court First District reversed the grant of summary judgment in favor of the defendant, finding that a 15B claim accrues with, quote, each and every capture and use of a plaintiff's fingerprint or hand scan, end quote. So with that, Dan, why don't you tell sure, us about a couple the things. We, we talked about, I think, in the workers' comp case about a five-year statute of limitations, right? That was decided and, again, continuous things. In this case, White Castle was using this system starting in 2004, at least with this one employee, Cathrone. She, she continues to be employed. Who continues to be employed. And as you said, uh, kind of like we've talked about uh, when cases are up at the uh, Northern District and Seventh Circuit with respect to these statutory violation cases, you get into a weird situation where, uh, for purposes of the uh, Class Action Fairness Act, CAFA, that defendants arguing to get to that $5 million threshold, right, that there's significant damages. Um, the interesting thing here, I think, for the for, from the uh, uh, appellee's position, uh, or appellant's position in this case, I apologize, uh, uh, Cathrone and, and the advocate, uh, was, as you said, putting it into the position of this. The statute says for each violation, a court may award $1,000 for negligent disclosures and $5,000 per occurrence for intentional. What he's saying is that may is discretionary. And, and he kept referring to some unknown type of way that a court would somehow take into account thousands of violations, as we've talked about, for the typical employee like the throne, if she has a lunch break, she might have to punch out or fingerprint herself. Then she punches back in. So four times a day, four to six, six times, times a day, day, depending on breaks and all this stuff. And so you times that by five days a week. You got 30 times 50, you know, two week, uh, times seven days a week. I mean, you're, you're talking thousands of violations year. per year. And as you and I talked, right. And as you and I talked about per in person. previous uh, instances where we've covered BIPA, uh, the gift that keeps on giving for uh, plaintiffs' lawyers, um, you know, junk facts, the can span to you name it. There, you know, there's all these alphabet soups of of, case, of matters that are these statutory violations. As you said on Rosenbach, Rosenbach said the statutory violation alone is the damage. And so, like you said, Pat, this was a case where 
White Castle is arguing this ruinous uh, exposures and liabilities. And then the plaintiff is arguing, nah, it's not that bad because while each instance is in fact a collection and transmittal, um, which, you know, is according to him and a lot of plaintiff's lawyers is the trigger, right? It's because you should get consent. Um, it just puts each party in a, a strange position. Plaintiffs are downplaying because they don't want this to be, you know, the, the theoretical. And we've talked about this a little bit in, in the kind of the uh, unanimous course of appeals on, on business interruption as kind of a reference, right? Is is that that there's some public par- policy argument that if there, the, the floodgates get opened, it would be destructive, right? Because of the amount of damages. And that's the, the case here, right? Is that the, the defendants are arguing that, the employers. Um, I do think it's interesting, and I think it was Justice Burke, uh, have a little difficulty, not the Chief Justice, but Justice Burke, Michael Burke, uh, that uh, asked the question about, well, what's the incentive then for employers if, if it's once and done, right? I think it was him that asked that question. And it's a good question, but on the other hand, um, uh, you know, who knows what the legislature thought about when they when they decided this uh, to to implement this? The, the reality, though, is, is we the incentive the incentive is is right. if their stuff actually gets stolen, and there's actual damages, and someone actually suffers an injury, which not, has not happened yeah. in a single one of these and cases. That's, that's, that's the yeah, that's, that's the risk. That's the risk. Um, you know, again, when you, when you go back to why this was was uh, uh, implemented in the first place, we, I, I've talked about this. It really, it really didn't have employment in mind. I mean, it was not the main purpose of this. What it was it was all about was was Jewel, which was owned by Albertsons, I believe, at the time, was starting to put in kind of you could do your thumb or uh, uh, another finger and not have to have your uh, your your savings card or your credit card available, mobile gas, the same thing. There was you can touch you could touch something, and so that was the original kind of intent of this. And so when you think about those things, um, you know, it, it, or or even the Six Flags, the Rosenbach case, right? It's it's not a it's not a daily. No, I don't think anybody in the legislature would admit or or state if they were asked, uh, and you can pin them down that they were thinking that this was like we said six to eight times a day someone punching in and out of their employment. That's what it's turned to because it is broad enough written. It's a very short statute as well. It's, it's not, it's a page and a half. Maybe the, 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 the paragraphs are very short. Um, and again, it was interesting. Some of the questions that were asked by, by uh, Justice Garman and Justice Burke, uh, just in terms of, you know, kind of the, on both, both sides, what, what the ramifications are if they go one way or another. Uh, at one point, I think the uh, person for Cathrone uh, was asked, you know, whether whether uh, he wanted the, the court to issue some kind of a rule, and he said yes. Again, it had a, I don't know even if you had some formula that said, well, you may award five thousand or a thousand, and I think that even Cathrone's uh, lawyer at, uh, conceded, yeah, somebody could ask for that, but people ask for stuff all the time. The the problem with that is is that. If you if you, if you read the statute according to how plaintiffs want it to be read, um, how how do you limit that? Right? How is the court even under due process arguments, you know, the, to to be like affected? You're going to have appeals all the time about 
And that's ultimately... And, and so... It, right. Because it's right. not based on it. No, there's no damages. There, there's, there's no actual damage. So how does a judge figure out anything other that, than the maximum? That's all these... You know, the, that's a problem there's with no these statutory to, no frameworks and kind of not only in Illinois, but just at the at the federal level. We talked about the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Uh, all, all these all these alphabet soups where there's statutory kinds of damages, that, that's the real rub here is that, you know, post Spokio and just the way that the law is developed, if the injury itself is the statutory violation, you know, again, how do, how do you keep from runaway uh, amounts? And to me, the, the biggest thing that these things present, uh, you see, uh, Facebook is, is, for example, you may have gotten a check. I mean, I, I got a check. I don't even know I was part of a class, but, you know, there's checks going out. I, I am not a member okay. of the class because you know, I don't it. use that service. Right. But there's <laughs> checks going out for $399 because, yeah, because I'm they like use the only face person recognition tools. That, you know, this is, I think, the California case. And so the, the, the biggest... And when I was in house, Pat, we've talked about TCPA and some of the other statutory uh, alphabet soup. What what these really are used for is plaintiffs will send you a letter, say, "Hey, you've you've committed 222 violations for my client, right? You he has 52 emails, and you sent him four unwarranted emails, or you you made calls to him, and so it's really a starting point, right? Hey, we can get you for 200 bucks per count. We can get you for a thousand bucks per count." And then it becomes a, a deal of, you know, are you going to figure out if you've got insurance coverage and then come up with some number that's, you know, hey, we'll give you, you know, 10 cents on a dollar for each claim or a nickel, you know, just something. And so that's what this really amounts to. The, the, other, the other thing I'll, I'll, I'll say about this is, is uh, as I mentioned at the uh, gala, uh, I had a chance to talk to Justice Tice and I was talking about our podcast, but just, you know, about, you know, listening to some of the cases um, and, uh, what she told me, and and we've talked about a lot, Pat, is that the bench used to be cold. She was talking about it's a warm bench now, and she she referred to Justice Burke and and the the new justices kind of uh, bringing that kind of questioning to the table. No, not Justice, Justice Neville. Neville. We never Neville hear a peep from Justice Neville. <laughs> um, and I, I said, you know, I think that's a good thing because again, you know, I I've, I've listened. We both listened to arguments before this became a warmer bench, and. In many cases, including Rosenbach, where my friend Phil Bach argued for uh, the the for Rosenbach, you know he he sat down because no questions. He said what he's going to say, and he's like, you know what, I've, I've done. The sense in the room is I'm just going to sit my done. ass down, and even Harry Butler was very, you know, very short because. Uh, so in any event, yeah, yeah. The only you know, prior to the just. Prior to the bench warming up, the only justice that would ask questions right. with any regularity was Justice Tice. Um, justice Garmin on occasion. But now that it's warmed right. up, she's got company. And there's others that are in there in there asking. Two points yep. I want to make on this before we go away. That's first is this. As Dan said, Ms. Cathrone worked for White Castle going back to 04, and they implemented yep. this procedure back then. In 08, the statute comes in and obviously continued to be used. If they rule in favor of the defendant, her claim is gone. That class is gone because it doesn't bring it within it doesn't bring it within the five years of when they brought their lawsuit. But so let's suppose they brought their lawsuit. I would imagine it's like in 17 or 18, something like that. You don't get back to, you know, uh, no. you don't get back to 11 or 12 uh, or 12 or 13. rather. So she, her claim is gone. The second thing is, is that one of the justices pointed out, I think it may have been Justice Garza, hold it now. 
Council, you're saying that there's not uh, these ruinous damages. Didn't Facebook settle, right. settle for like a whole boatload of money? What do you mean there's no giant damages out there? Uh, I can point to one because he was pointing to how settlements in these typical, typical he's right. These cases are typically settling right. for a much smaller number than a thousand or five thousand dollars per violation. That's true. But that doesn't mean that that's going to continue if the court finds that there's continuous accrual. The court finds continuous violation and continuous accrual, the price of poker is going to go up substantially. And those cases have settled on the basis that right. that issue hasn't been decided yet. And defendants want to get out because of the risk, and plaintiffs are willing to take something in the event that they lose. And to be able to right. fund the rest of this litigation, too. Um, they've got to get some minute money coming in the door while all these cases continually get stayed as appeals continually be taken. I mean, these cases have not moved because... First, it was Rosenbach. Then it was McDonald. Now it's uh, now it's being stayed on um, on this case, uh, Cathrone. It'll be Tim's next. I mean, they're just continually getting stayed. The plaintiffs got to get well, some Watson, money coming to the door. Was so, Watson appealed to the Supreme Court? The case they talked about at the appellate level. I don't know if. Well, yeah. this kind of real right. deals with the issue. They don't need to take Watson. This case, the question in Watson was only fifteen B. This one deals with fifteen B and D. So they don't have to right. take both Watson and yeah. the throne. They can take one or the other. And they took, obviously they took the certified question. So. Right. Cause that comes to a much quicker. So with that, we'll take our, our next break and come back with a, a pretty long third segment and Palmer versus LB motor sales. Hey, Podium and podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three. Of the Podium and Panel podcast, episode 97. What is sufficient to plead that a driver is unfit for the job? That is essentially the question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court, 3rd District, decides Palmer versus LB Motor Sales, LLC. The plaintiff alleges that he was injured when he became involved in a motor vehicle accident with an 84 year old driver who was hired by and had been driving for the defendant car dealer for several, several years without incident and had a valid license without restriction. Plaintiff pled his complaint several times before ultimately being dismissed with prejudice. It does not seem that the plaintiff pled any particular unfitness of the driver, like driving history, accidents, or health condition, and has instead pled statistics regarding the increased likelihood of accidents by elderly drivers. And the uh, pad had posted a cartoon that illustrates the point. But the question is, is, is just age enough? As it seems the driver was in the scope of his employment, it is unclear what utility the negligent hiring claim serves as. This is a clear agency claim. But with the McQueen case holding that an employer could be liable independent of the negligence of the employee, that could be the answer. And as I mentioned to Pat, I sat next to Michael uh, Rasek, um, who, was, who argued and won the McQueen case. Uh, a point made by counsel for Apelli was that if the employee refused to hire or fired the driver solely based on his age, they could be sued for employment discrimination. And probably, as we mentioned, 
he'd been driving for a long time, so they'd have to terminate him in this case at some point when he became a certain age. And again, uh, discrimination uh, exposure would ensue, right? So that, Pat, tell us about this oral argument that, by the way, lasted 19 minutes and a few seconds. Exactly. It was a it was rocket docket. They got through it. It's a pretty straightforward issue. But the reason I wanted to we wanted to talk about this is because of the the two tail issues that Dan was talking about is that so negligent hiring, it has to be you hired somebody who was particularly to them. That person was particularly unfit. So, for example, I hire a security guard with a conviction for burglary. Yeah, that seems like someone I shouldn't hire as a security guard who then commits a violent crime or I hire, you know, or he's, he's, he's got a sexual assault conviction on his record or something, you know, that, that you can't do. Or if this driver, um, let's suppose they hired him and he had a clean record and then he had been in five accidents over the last year and he had been at fault for all of them. Not, not, you know, if he hadn't been at fault, that's maybe a different story. Let's suppose he was at fault for all five of them and they continued, you know, that that's a negligent retention claim. He just keeps running into things. Um, one would think they would get rid of him in any event. But if he's got a clean record, he's just an older fellow. Okay, maybe he's a very careful, good driver. Well, I mean, hard to find good employees. He may be a very good employee. Uh, it's unclear um, if it, it's unclear if he was at fault for this accident. Obviously, the plaintiff thinks he is. Uh, but it could be that they suited on this basis because on this theory that but for him being at this age, this accident wouldn't have occurred or Maybe he's not very not very negligent, or the, the question of liability is close. It's a bit it's a bit strange. Uh, there was nothing pled. This went through like five or six iterations of the complaint. Uh, several were repled before motions to dismiss were ruled on before the court finally dismissed it with prejudice. So the the defendant brought up very very clearly and then they were the appellee said if we did what plaintiff essentially wants us to do we're just going to get sued for employment discrimination we can't do this this is crazy uh if he's unfit to drive suppose he develops a heart condition suppose he develops vertigo you know sometimes happens with even younger people but if he has some particular inability to to drive uh then yeah then he then you you deal with that but absent that just simply being an old guy doesn't uh, doesn't do the trick. Uh, Dan, anything else to add on on to this case? I'll be very interested to hear what the court and, does on you this. You know, my father. How they find that this? How they find right. in favor of the? Of the I mean, uh, my my father was eighty four and just bought a new car, and again, he has no restrictions on his driver's license, and he's a you know a great driver. So it, it is. Uh, yeah, it's unclear, but you could see why. Perhaps the, the pleadings, you you know, how, how do you make a claim? Again, like you said, what's the negligent hiring? And if this guy's been working for a long time, it didn't say exact number of years, but, you know, maybe he's hired when he was 55 or 65. Maybe this was, you know, who the heck knows? But, again, uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with this. Um, likely to find for the defendant, but it's just an, uh, an interesting case. And, and the – you know, right. if they if they don't roll for the uh, defendant, that it, that raises some just interesting employment issues going forward for a lot of people. Indeed. So that brings us to the uh, to our COVID nineteen uh, 
cases for the week. Anything in particular this uh, week, Dan? As we've mentioned, you know, it continues to be uh, pretty much the same thing. We're get you know, every week we get a couple of decisions from the appellate courts that we come in shorter and shorter opinions just because they're saying, see, whatever prior precedent that they've issued, right? They're just basically string so, sites at this point. Uh, nothing, nothing. But, and none of the states that are, we're still waiting for, I don't think any of the states have issued, the highest courts have issued any of their uh, decisions yet, other than the ones we've already talked about in past weeks. One, one, of, one of my partners argued one in front of the 11th Circuit this past week. Um, one of my partners out of Atlanta. And the big, the, the interesting part about that argument uh, from a national perspective is that the Restaurant Law Center got four minutes as amicus to argue, and uh, uh, Gabriel Gillette from Jenner and Block's office here in Chicago uh, argued on behalf of the Restaurant Law Center as they have filed briefs on that on behalf of that organization around the country and, are, and have cases pending in, in Illinois as well, obviously. He got, it was interesting that they allowed the amicus to argue. He, he got that in the Seventh Circuit, you might recall. We, we covered that, uh, one of the first Seventh Circuit cases uh, he got the the restaurant association. It was the the letter center ten U case or one of those with restaurants, um, and and he got to argue for maybe I don't think it was four minutes. So I think it was three minutes at, at the Seventh Circuit, but he did get to argue. So, but it is interesting that they're allowing them, you know, and they are. At least so. they're getting heard. <laughs> at least they are getting heard. All right. So with that, let's turn to our predictions. Sure to go wrong. You want to go sure, to our predictions sure. for this week with the cases, Dan? So BFD, what do you think? All right. So the first one is BFD versus Kopnik. I, I think they're going to affirm. And one thing we forgot to mention was it is. I think this is an abuse of discretion standard. I, I think they're going to find that the trial court did I, not I abuse its discretion. Yes. Have I got that right? Okay. So then we come to Cothrone. Now, one thing we didn't talk about is they could go very narrow and not reach the damages question and simply say there's single or cruel or there is multiple accrual. And if they say there's multiple right. accrual, they don't have to reach the damages question. They can leave that for another day. Now, I think everybody hopes they don't do that because the, the case that deals with multiple damages is coming shortly. So you might as well just deal with it. Um, so I think it's getting reversed. I think they're fine. I think the defendants are finally going to win one yeah. of these cases. Dan, what do you think? I, I, I think the defendants got to win one. I mean, goodness gracious, they've lost everything else except for except for the Walton versus Roosevelt case. They've lost every single appellate opinion in this area. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go the opposite just because of, of some of Justice Burke's questions, and uh, but but I okay. think it's, it'll be interesting to how this is coming out. It's it's not clear to me from oral argument, and like like you said, I think if they do reverse, it's it's not going to. It's not going to do damages. No, it's hardly clear to um, me. It'll just be the more narrow, the the continuous trigger. No. Right. Well, they won't have right. to do damages. If it's only one accrual, right. the damages are taken care of. It's just once. Right. Okay, $1,000. Fine, here you are. It doesn't become, it just becomes the number of people in the class. You got 1,000 people in the class, you got $1,000 per thing, it's a million dollars. Okay. Now, you know, then you argue about, oh, no, it's not $1,000, but it's not, it's not, 2,000 violations per 1,000 people. And now you're just talking about crazy damages. Um, so that brings us to the uh, Palmer case. Affirm? 
Affirm, yeah. All right, so a lot of cases this week, in right. addition to a lot of the oral arguments, uh, our records now are Dan 141 and a half, 22 and a half, and seven. And I am 140 and a half, 23 and a half, and seven. I picked up one this week. Uh, we had a split that we'll get to uh, on how that on how that went. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about Lucanti versus Moklinicki, sure. the, the, the all-name the team. Case where where uh, Lucanti was injured when a refrigerator he was helping move uh, fell on him, uh, trapping his middle finger against the floor, and, and his finger ended up being severed. Uh, he filed suit against. Uh, it, it does. That hurts, um, by the way. And he had he had two counts: the plaintiff's initial complaint, premises liability, and, and negligence. Um, the there was a, there was a global uh, a settlement agreement, settling all the claims against uh, Moglenicki, the property company, and Bill Micko, doing business as Elite Stone, for twenty nine thousand uh, dollars. This is a case where the plaintiff. Uh, there was a, a dispute at oral argument in, in, in the underlying case about whether um, uh, his counsel had the authority to enter into the settlement agreement and whether he was at some meeting or wasn't at a meeting or whether he said, you know, you can settle for anything above 29000 or not. Um, the 20, 25000 was the alleged agreement. Um, and they, they... defendants in this case, they filed an emergency motion to enforce settlement. The, the trial court granted the defendant's emergency motion. Um, the um, uh, uh, court uh, reversed and uh, sent it back. So uh, no, no settlement. No settlement. Yeah, I, I, this was this opinion was written by Justice Gordon. If you recall, yeah. Justice Gordon was didn't receive right. the defendant's argument very oh. well. Uh, on what the that's very what the, kind. I'm being it very kind, um, <laughs> and yeah, it was really. And we, uh, we it was really pretty. We harsh. talked about when we and, when we covered this case about you know who was going to come with Gordon because right we knew where Gordon was on this. <laughs> we know no yeah. question where Gordon was at. All right, so that brings us to Alave versus City of Chicago. This is the one we split on. So disclaimer. There were two cases that week against the city of Chicago, and nobody could pronounce the name of the defendant. And when we talked about it and we labeled it on the podcast, we labeled it as the Blaha case, which came out against, also came out against the city, which dealt with their parking tickets. Turns out it was the Alave case. This is how badly they were brutalizing the pronunciation of the name. And the, one of the problems is the the Illinois Appellate Court, it's just one common link for all the arguments. They don't have individual argument links anymore, so you can confuse them, and I did hear apologies. Anyway, this is the case with the Divi bike and the guy that was crossing the street uh, on his bike in the crosswalk, and essentially what the court says is maybe the city owes a duty or maybe it doesn't. It's too early to tell. We need more facts, and reverse the grant of summary judgment. Um, that's essentially what the court said. So the city hasn't lost yet. Uh, it lost this round, but there may be some more facts that they may be able to develop. But it, it seems unlikely they're going to be able to claim toward immunity in this circumstance. But we'll see. Uh, Dan, anything else to uh, add on the allotment? One thing case? was, and I think you mentioned it uh, on the podcast, but the motion to dismiss never mentioned the fact that the plaintiff uh, was riding his bike in a crosswalk at the time. And so 
probably a, a relevant fact. Not sure how much that would have moved. I, I don't know either. The court, but it's. It is. I think it's. it's I think it's important. important fact to me. So. Uh, which brings us to Dawkins versus Fitness International, which was argued, which was ruled on by the Illinois Supreme yeah, Court. Yeah, this was the case where the, the person uh, suffered a medical issue, and they had uh, AED uh, defibrillators present. And the main question in this case is whether a physical fitness, right, as required by statute, facility has a duty under either the Physical Fitness Facility Medical Emergency Preparedness Act. Talk about a long-winded name for a com- uh, statute, or the automated external Stay, say that five times fast uh, to use an automated uh, external defibrillator when a patron's having an apparent cardiac arrest. Uh, the uh, court said yes, you do have an affirmative um, uh, that the statutory scheme did in fact impose such a duty. And as we talked about when we covered this case, there's a lot of discussion about the the acts and what they said. And, and the the uh, fitness facility argued that you know that there's no mandatory. You, you have to have the AED devices on the premises, uh, but you had no duty, which kind of you know begs the question. Then what what the hell's the point of having you know something there? It's like having fire alarms, but nobody's going to pull one just because, right? There's no duty to to do anything, and so um, so so. I will say this. We got the prediction right. We said that they would rule in favor of the plaintiff. Right. It's not no, what the we, statute I agree. says. They, I, I think they completely rewrote the statute. I think the statute says I you can't too. get them for but, non-use. <laughs> but but, but three, judges of, three justices of the appellate court and seven justices of the Supreme Court disagree with me. So I guess I'm, I'm left with one trial court judge. I lose. <laughs> But, but no, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see what happens next, if anything. Uh, the next case was Christian Amuthi versus Chen, which was the battling pack, uh, engineering professors at Bradley University, where the court held that the plaintiff could not state a claim for intentional infliction of emotional distress uh, or, tish, or tortious interference with expectancy. Um, that's the uh, that, that was affirmed, um, so that was another one that we got right. So with that, let's go to our rule of the week. Uh, this comes to us a well-heeled and well-known, well-trod section of the uh, uh, strike that uh, statement from Judge Easterbrook, but it bears repeating. Don't use initialisms with Judge Easterbrook. And this is one where they kept using the initialism for EMTALA, which is the Emergency Medical Transfer <laughs> Act thing. Uh, and just, can you call it the act? You know, And he got fed up with both advocates. And then, he was on fire this day in the arguments, by the way. And then this happened. So I'm going to play this. ...determines its own capabilities by establishing a standard procedure, which is all the hospital needs to follow to avoid liability under MTALA. So here the question is, under what? (laughs) Under the act, I apologize. It seems impossible for some specialists to use English words, and I don't know why. 
I mean, it's, it's one of the most important things to understand about appellate advocacy. We're generalists. I apologize. Well, it's a very good rule. Judge Easterbrook making the point, we are generalists. Keep an idea. They are, don't practice. He's not a medical malpractice lawyer. He never was. Uh, he, you know, he could obviously read a statute and had, and had tons of questions about how this case, how they're supposed to go about deciding the case. It was very frustrated with the advocates, not only on their use of initialisms, but their failure to really address the issue that they thought was the statutory construction issue, an issue in the case. Really frustrated with both advocates on that point. But at the end of the day, it makes a very good point. They don't know your case. They don't know your law like you do. You've got to keep that in mind when you're drafting your brief and making your argument. So hmm. it's, <laughs> once again, uh, don't use initialisms, but here's the reason why. We're generalists. Dan, anything to That's add on that rule? It's very good for any advocate at any level is to understand that, that the trier of fact, whether it's an arbitrator, mediator, uh, or judge or jury doesn't know the matters as well as you. And so you need to make sure that you educate about, like you said, the issues at point and don't use initials or, or acronyms of things that may be germane to your world, but not known to folks that aren't as intimately involved with the subject matter. So with that, uh, we'll take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.